Well, in chapter 1, we saw that Christ himself said that his coming quickly or with actually with a swiftness. And the Lord is coming back, and I believe it's very soon. Signs of the time are clearly showing Israel has become a nation. Europe is coming together just as Daniel said it would come together hundreds of years before Christ, which has been almost 3,000 years now. It was prophesied what would happen in Europe, and it's taking place even now before our eyes. And uh, we see that the days are growing worse and worse, more and more evil, and uh, calling good evil and evil good. We also see, um, as he said, there would be an unleashing of demons in the last days. Uh, It's interesting, a hundred years ago, there were basically five major religions in the whole world. Today, there are thousands. The Bible said that would take place. The Bible says that in the last days, men would be wanting simply their ears to be tickled. And actually, let's look at that real quick. In Timothy, if you'll turn to 2 Timothy, to the left there a little ways, and tell me if this is not an apt description of our day. In chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, Second Timothy chapter 3, But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves. Is that true? Do we have more books written today on self-esteem and learning how to love yourself? Lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers. Never in a time of history has anyone ever out and out blasphemed God and Jesus Christ. Disobedient to parents unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders, without self-control, brutal. Boy, does that describe most of television. Despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. If we were to describe our country, I think in one phrase, that would be it right there. We're lovers of pleasure. Boy, do we love pleasure. We live for it, we work for it, we save for it, we spend our money on it. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power, and from such people turn away. For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives, a gullible women, loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, and uh, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And he gives some examples of that. And uh, we see our, these last days are clear descriptions of exactly what he's saying here. That the days in which we live are perilous times. He said it would be like the days of Noah, giving and taking in marriage. Also the days of Noah, it says, man's heart was evil continually, or always devising another evil plan. Well, the world's always been in a bad way, but it's getting worse. And it's just about as bad as it can get. I don't think it can get much worse. With the child molestation and the drunkenness and the desire for pleasure. And last week we saw that the church is in a very unhealthy state in the last days. We find out in Thessalonians there's going to actually be a great falling away. However, there's also going to be a remnant of people that are very strong, strong Christians. They'll have to be. To endure to the end. The longer you live, the worse the world gets, the harder it's going to be to be a Christian. 
I wish I had good news saying things are getting better. Hang in there. It's not the case. Things are getting worse and they're going to continue to get worse. But for you, if you are a born-again Christian, things are going to get tighter with you in the Lord. So actually, we say, let the hard times come. Because that's my goal in life, is to get closer to the Lord. And so, in prayers, I don't say, God, make my life easier, make my life better. I say, Lord, do whatever it takes to bring me closer to you, to draw me closer to you, to make me more like you, so I can be more of a light and a salt. And the Bible teaches us that God is loving enough to allow hardship to come into our life, to purge our hearts and to purge our life. Actually, the Bible tells us it's like uh, that of purging gold. If you go to a rock and you find a, looks like some gold embedded in some dirt or some rock, you throw it into the fire. And there as it begins to heat up, the dross, the other elements, the other alloys begin to float. And you can scoop up the other alloys and you continue to heat it up and then to scoop the more alloys. And the higher you turn the heat, the purer it gets, whether it's 14 karat gold or 18 karat gold or even higher. And of course, gold in its perfect state is almost liquid. Uh, the other alloys is what makes it hard. And so again, God has taken our lives and he's throwing us into the pot and he turns the heat up. And as the heat heats us up, as the trials and the difficulties become greater in our lives, one of two things will happen. Either we are the dross and we'll be burned up, we'll be taken out of the way, or we're that gold and we'll be purified and uh, made more in the image of Christ. And that's where we find the church in Smyrna, in verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, which in the Christian circles is always translated suffering. Today it's the Turkish city of Izmir, at the time, it was one of the greatest and most beautiful cities, uh, often known as the crown or the ornament of Asia. And so he says here, These things says the first and the last, who is dead and came to life. I know your works, your tribulations, or it could also be translated, your, just your troubles. Often tribulations are these big things, but we're troubled all day long. And God's saying He knows not only your works, but He knows all the troubles that are going on in your life. Your poverty, but let me tell you, you're rich. I know the blasphemies of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of the, these things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. First of all, he tells us there in verse 8 that God has made this church of suffering. And again, there are some of you here, and again, when we talk about a church, we're not necessarily talking about a location. We're talking about believers in Christ. The Bible doesn't look at separate organizations. Man does. God looks at everybody who has the Holy Spirit in them as the church. Whatever the name over the door is on the building you go into to hear a sermon, God could care less about that. We saw that 
in uh, the last couple of weeks how, again, uh, people thinking that because they're part of an organization, they're right with God. That is not the case. If you know Jesus Christ and you're right with Him, then you're right with God. An organization will never make you right with God. And so again, there are certain part of the body of Christ who God has chosen for suffering. It's very possible because of the pride of your own heart or because of your own arrogance or just because of the way your mind works. It changes your heart. And your heart is the most important part of your anatomy as far as Christ is concerned. He wants your heart to be right with Him. And so therefore, if difficulty makes you humble and broken, coming to Him, that's where He wants you to be. Paul was that type of person. We find out in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, if you'd like to turn there, if not, you can just listen. But we find out that there he was having a hard time with the devil, attacking him. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says, And unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelation, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. In verse 8 of 2 Corinthians 12, Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that I might depart from me that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now notice the list he gives. Therefore, I take pleasure. Interesting word. And here he gives the list. In infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And so there is a time and there are certain believers that God has put into a situation that troubles accompany them. Troubles with their cars, troubles with the place they live, troubles with their work, troubles with their bosses, troubles with their relatives. And I often look at certain people and I go, my goodness, Lord, thank you for, I'm not them. <laughs> I don't think I could endure it. But every time I see somebody on the freeway broken down or somebody in a car wreck, I just say, Lord, thank you for protecting me. Thank you that my four banger are all banging. <laughs> my car isn't broken down. And Lord, help him. Boy, it's a tough situation to have the troubles. But notice what the Lord says. I'm the first and I'm the last. And then he says, I was dead and now I'm alive. There's not a boundary in which Jesus Christ is not already touched. Often when we're going through hard times, we just wonder, God, do you really know? Do you really understand what I'm going through here? If you are God and you do love me and you do understand the hurt and the difficulty that I'm having, why aren't you taking me out of it? I don't understand it. But yet, God tells us, I do know. I'm at the very beginning of your troubles 
and I'm at the very end of your troubles. Whether in this life or in death, I've seen it all and I know all and I understand it all. Trust in me. Job was a very interesting individual because everything in his life always went well. But yet, a time of trouble came to him. We find in Job that first all his kids were killed. The house that he had built and they were having a feast in fell upon them when a strong wind came and they all died at once. Now I can imagine having one child dead, but all your kids die at once? But the very next day all his men come in and all the different businesses that he had going and one by one they told him everything you've had is lost and his accountant's there saying you are completely broke. Now if that weren't enough, the next day he gets an illness and he has boils on the bottom of his feet to the top of his head. Now I had chicken pox when I was about 12 and I had it bad. And I couldn't sit down. I couldn't stand up. There was no position that I wasn't in extreme pain for a couple of days. But Job was in this condition for many days. And then top it all off, we know why the devil kept his wife alive. She comes out saying, man, there's something wrong with you. Curse God so he'll kill you. This is obviously something spiritual. And then his best three buddies come up and say, man, you're a horrible sinner. Well, what makes you say that? Well, you must be because we know this kind of stuff doesn't happen to good people. And boy, they start telling him all the things that he must have done. Mistreated the poor, to lying, to cheating, to all the things he must have done because... You know, he's just not willing to admit it. And so the whole book is spent listening to these three guys trying to get Job to admit all the wrong in his life. And he said, hey, I'm a sinner, but I've confessed it. And it's not the issue and the reason this is happening. And finally God appears and he tells him that, hey, he asked these guys, were you there in the beginning? Interesting question. Were you there when I made the light? Were you there when I formed the oceans? And he starts telling these guys, you don't have the capacity mentally to understand what's taking place here. And when he begins to describe the world, when he describes to them how intricately he made the world, he shows them every boundary. He starts asking them, hey, can you feed a lion? What's it take to keep a lion alive? How much food does it eat? But I feed them all. How long is a deer in labor? Do you know I give birth to every little baby doe? But how long is a deer labor before it gives birth? Would you know? Could you be there in time? He starts asking these people very intricate and specific questions. And God is saying, I have the whole world in control. He even says, I made a big ostrich, a dumb bird, because I wanted a dumb bird. God says, I know it all. I have it all in control. There's nothing here on planet Earth, whether it's one piece of sand that turns over, or there's one little piece of grass that I have to live but a few days, or one flower that will only bloom and die within a few hours. I have it all in control. And Jesus tells us he knows every hair on our head. God's concern for us is not our physical well-being here. He tells the disciples, don't be as the Gentiles. What am I going to eat? What am I going to wear? Don't be that way. The heathen, they seek after those things. Listen, you seek the kingdom of God and righteousness and things will fall into place that need to fall into place. 
But you say, well, I'm seeking God and I'm still poor. Great. That's where God wants you. You shouldn't be concerned about that because God's not concerned about that. He says with food and raiment, therefore be content. In other words, if you got some clothes on you, and you all do here tonight, <laughs> thank, thank goodness. <laughs> and you've all ate at least one meal a day today. Hey, praise the Lord. The day's come and the day's over. You've ate a meal. You survived. You're still alive. You may be a little hungry. You may be a little thirsty. But you're alive. That's all that materialistically we're to be concerned with. God's main concern is your heart. And when you add up our 70 years here, 80 years here you live, and compare it to all of eternity where we'll be walking on streets of gold, We'll have a crown of life. We'll have the tree of life that we can eat fruit from. Forever in the presence of the Lord where he's making us live in this incredible banqueting place. Believe me, it's not a great difficulty upon you for these few years. And so it's important that we understand God's perspective. He knows your troubles. He's the first and the last. He's even died. He knows what death is like. And he's risen again. And so again, I just tell you tonight, don't let your heart be troubled. In this world, there's many tribulations, but be a good cheer, because he's overcome this world, and you too are going to overcome this world. But if your heart is so wrapped up and set on having things in this world, you're going to be a very disappointed individual. And the worst fear of it all is if you get it. Because Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. And he wants your treasure to be upon him. And so, in his economy of things, if to bring you to poverty, or to bring you to sickness, or to have Satan himself put a thorn in your flesh, to cause you to sense your own weakness, so you rely upon him, amen and amen, let it be so. Therefore, our glory, our pleasure for in my infirmities, all pleasure in my needs, he says, and in my difficulties. God knows. He knows everything. He's fully in control. And David says in Psalms 37 that the Lord has you in his hand. And he says that he's seen the righteous be poor, but he's never seen them begging for bread, neither them nor their seed. So God knows your need, and he's not going to let you die. And if you do, well, praise God, all the sooner to be with him. But the sands of your life is in his hands. He has you completely in his control. And so I know your works, he says, and he knows that your works are in the midst of tribulations and poverties amongst blasphemy. And then there are the people who are calling themselves Jews and are not. Now, the word Jew is often used in the New Testament as a play on words. You can read it in Romans chapter 2. Uh, there, when Paul uses the play on the words there, let me read this to you, when he's talking about baptism and so forth, and he says, And he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is that circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. 
But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, and not of the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Now the play on the word there in verse 29 of chapter 2 of Romans, the word praise is the same word Jew. The word Jew is literally the word praise. And so he's saying, he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, but one in the heart, in the spirit, and not of the letter, whose Jewness, who the, the Jewishness, the praise, is not from men, but from God. And there are certain people among them who are calling themselves God's chosen, God's people. He's not necessarily talking here about maybe literally Jews, but who are saying, I am in God's perfect will. I'm to be praised. Because, boy, look at God's blessing upon me. And there's people today, I know, you look at some of these health and wealth guys on TV and they just make me sick. Oh, boy, am I in the anointing. And, boy, I've laid hands on the sick. I heard Oral Roberts say it, a pastor's conference. He holds up his hands and he says, let me tell you, these hands have touched and healed more people than Jesus Christ himself. Talking, praise, his own praise. The next word he says, let me tell you, I try when I speak on that TV, I try to get that little poor widow social security check. Because once she gives her money to me and to God's work, then God can bless her. You see these people proclaiming their own praise of being in God's will and having God's anointing and God's power and God's blessing upon them. But yet, it's only outward. It's not in the heart. God's greatest work on planet Earth is not through you, but in you. The praise and the glory that God's get is not the work through you. It's the work that's happening in your heart your character. We find that God doesn't look on the outward man. God looks on the heart. And so, if a person's led 30 people to the Lord, oh, well, praise God. He could have used a donkey to do that. But yet all week you've been honest and you've loved your wife, you've loved your husband, you've taught to your kids the Word of God while you're laying down and rising up. In your closet, you prayed. When you gave, you didn't let your right hand know what your left hand was doing. Hey, now that praises the Lord. And we find that tribulations and trials are doing that very thing. And so he says that, you know, here, here are these people really serving the Lord, living a Christian life in character, but yet outward, their circumstances are very hard. There's persecutions, there's difficulties, there's troubles, there's trials, there's poverty. But yet there's these other people who are literally of the, you know, again, it's the play on the words, the word synagogue can also be translated congregation. And he's saying they're demonic. And I'll tell you right now, Robert Tilton and some of these other guys, Copeland and Hagen, I'm telling you, they are demonic. They are going to roast in hell. There's no doubt in my mind that the things they are preaching are right from the heart of Satan himself. Jesus Christ never preached prosperity, nor did he ever live it. Christianity in Jesus' mind was not the inroads on how to be healthy and wealthy. 
Jesus Christ taught the kingdom of heaven was changing the heart of a person from wickedness and sin to righteousness and purity. To have a relationship with him by faith, not by, prosper, by prosperity. And a person would be known as a Christian by their love, not by their Rolls Royce and Jaguar and the fact they haven't been to the doctor the last year. There is a clear-cut distinction. And unfortunately, God's time on judging is not our time. God is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. And if it were up to me, I would have already fried those guys. But God's going to play the cards out and let them live the rest of their life. And who knows? Maybe they will repent. I pray that they do. Manasseh was the most wicked king that Judah ever saw. He actually had Isaiah, the prophet, according to tradition, sawn in two. But you know what? Right before he died, he repented. So it's not hopeless for these guys, but I'll tell you right now, they're being used by the devil in a very specific way. But then he goes on to say, Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Notice that you may be tested. And you will have tribulation or troubles for ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Turn to James, if you would. It's just to the left, a couple of pages, to James chapter 1. In verse 2, he says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces what? Patience, endurance, the power to overcome. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. And then if, you'll, if you'd like to also turn to Romans chapter 5, if not, I'll read that to you also. He says this, And not only that, glory in that we're right with God, but we also glory in tribulation, in verse 3 of Romans chapter 5, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, patience, the power to overcome. And that perseverance produces character. And character produces hope. There's times in history where a person can claim to be a Christian and they can pretend to be a Christian and in all matter of what we can see could live out their full life not really having a relationship with Christ but because of the world around them it's never been tested. But in the last days it's not going to be so. To be a Christian it's going to be a very definite act. You won't be able to be a Christian secretly. It will have to be something that's very definite. And we're seeing it more and more today. Where the world's asking you to lie and to cheat. And you're having to put your foot down to saying, I cannot do it. I know one lady who works for one of the major branches of banks here in town. And this one boss of hers was wanting to have a teaching session to the people under him. And he had gotten a certain notebook and asked her to make copies of it and get it out to the people and it said right on there, copyright, you cannot reproduce this. 
And he says, you do it. And she says, man, I, I can't do it. He goes, well, you think about it tonight. If you want your job or you want to not copy this, you decide. In his mind, it was just, you're being rebellious. In her mind, it's like, hey, I've got to submit unto God rather than to man. So the next day, he just said, fine. He had another secretary do it. And within a few months, uh, she was not demoted, but everybody else was promoted over her, which was a demotion. And then he made life very difficult for her if she wanted to remain working there. And so again, I think it's coming clearer and clearer, especially as Europe becomes a common market and we see them beginning to cause the world's economy to be a one-world economy. Uh, and very quickly, you're going to have to have the bank back of your hand or your forehead stamped with a mark. The Bible calls it the mark of the beast if you want to be able to buy or to sell. Whether that happens before the second coming of Christ, before the rapture of the church, I mean, or not, I don't know. But I do know that times are going to get more and more perilous. If you want to be a Christian, let me give you a promise of God. Those who desire to live God in this life will be persecuted. Like I said, there is chunks of time, whether it's 50 years or 100 years, that Christians could live out their life not being persecuted, not being tested of their faith. But as the end times come closer and closer, that will not be the case. And so with these trials, with these testings, God's told us to rejoice because it's actually Him changing our character. What's the immediate effect of it going to be? The testing of your faith. Now, unfortunately, there's very few churches that the Bible's taught as you're being taught here tonight. They're basically teaching popular things. I was talking to one guy who was part of a large church here in town, and he said, I was there a year, and all I ever memorized was the personality types, whether you're a choleric or a, a sanguine or whatever, and how those personality types are to help you to cope with other people, basically. And that was his main thrust of his sermons. There's a lot of people teaching a lot of things other than the Bible because they're afraid they're going to bore people with it. And uh, If you're bored with the God's Word, I'm sorry. Go somewhere where you can find something more exciting. But nevertheless, these trials, we need to rejoice in them, saying, Thank you, Lord. As Paul says, I glory. I take pleasure in these afflictions. Thank you for them because I know that it's a sign that you love me, that you're changing me. But notice what he says there in James. Let the trials have their perfect work. You can shut God down. He will not force you to change your life. God is very gentle. He's easy to entreat. He is not a pushy God. And if he's trying to change your character so you can have the fruit of the Spirit, that love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the goodness, the self-control in your life, and you want to murmur and complain, fine, he'll turn the heat right off. Hezekiah was dying of an illness. And he had lived a good life, and God said, okay, Isaiah, go tell Hezekiah to get his household in order, that this is my time to take him home. And Hezekiah faced the wall and he cried out saying, This isn't fair. God, you're not good. This isn't right. God told Isaiah, Go back and tell Hezekiah he has another 15 years to live. And he goes back in and he says, Hezekiah, you've got another 15 years to live and there's always going to be peace during that time. It was not God's will for him to live that 15 years. 
But nevertheless, because of his own heart's attitude towards God, God said, go ahead. And during that 15 years, he cursed Judah many times. He had the son Manasseh, as I mentioned earlier, during that time who ended up killing the prophet Isaiah, leading the whole country into wickedness. Many other bad things happened during that time. And if you say, God, where are you? God, you really don't answer prayer. God, this Bible's full of a, nothing but a bunch of nonsense. And there's really no people down at that church that love you. They're all a bunch of hypocrites. And I'm tired of this. And I'm tired of that. God will say, fine. No problem. Here, let me turn it off. Oh, oh I was just kidding, God. I love you, church. Oh, I love the word. Oh, it's everything's so nice and sweet. Okay, go ahead. Be a shallow person if you want. But let me tell you something. The sign of a willingness of to allow God have tribulation in your life is a sign that you are born again. We find in Peter, he says that if you're a Christian, you'll add to your faith a diligence. To diligence, a moral, a moral conduct, a moral conduct, a knowledge, until finally you come down to this love. And he says if these things are in your life and abounding, you're, you'll never be fruitless. But let me tell you, he says if these things aren't in your life and they're not abounding, you need to check your chosenness to see if you be in Christ. And so if you're murmuring, we find out in the Old Testament when God was trying to take his people in the promised land, they kept murmuring. It was a sign of unbelief in their hearts. And God tells us that we're to rejoice, not to murmur. And if we rejoice in these trials, if I know God already knows every hair in my head, and He didn't promise me an easy life here, He didn't promise me health and wealth and prosperity, He promised that my heart would be right with Him, and that's His concern, I say thank you for these trials. If poverty is going to cause my heart to be right with you, let it come. If illness or difficulties or whatever the trials may be are going to cause my heart to be right with you, Lord, that's all I care about is to be right with you. To have a heart full of love, of joy, of peace, of patience, of goodness, of self-control. Lord, whatever it takes, I am willing. Don't count the cost when concerning me. Whatever it takes, God, to be right with you is what I desire. In that kind of heart, God can change you until you're complete, lacking nothing. But notice what trials do in James and Romans. It says this. It produces that endurance, that patience. And notice what he says here in verse 10. You who have a tribulation for 10 days, be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. And then notice that last verse, verse 11. He who overcomes, he who has a continual patience, he who's able to keep the name of Jesus Christ and the character of a Christian until the end. That's the person who's truly born again. That's the person who's not going to go to hell. There's many people, Jesus said, who'll come in that day saying, Lord, Lord. And he'll be saying, be gone, you doers of iniquity. I never knew you. Narrow is the gate that leads to life. Wide is the gate that leads to destruction. Narrow is the gate that leads to life. And few are them who find it. Wide is the gate that leads to destruction. And many are them who find it. As hurtful as it is for me to say this, because much as I love you all, I know I will not see all of you in heaven. I don't know that. I can't tell you why. I just know that there's a remnant that will be saved. There's probably a larger percentage than I want to think here tonight of people who are unwilling to say, Lord, search my heart. 
There's a larger group of people here than I care to think who are afraid to say, God, whatever it takes, I don't care the cost, I don't care the hardship, I don't care the difficulty upon me. Don't spare me, God. Just make me right with you, whatever it takes. I think there are fewer people who will truly pray that from their hearts. And those same people are not denying themselves daily and taking up that cross and following Jesus Christ. They're living life in their own mind, in their own way. The Word of God is not the lamp unto their feet and the light unto their path because they don't take God's Word daily. As the Lord says, we can't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so Christianity is a lighter thing to them than it should be when it should be the first and the foremost thought in our life, seeking Him first in His kingdom and His righteousness. Yes, that is the first waking thought of my day and the last wake, the last thought I think before I fall off to sleep. Christ, you being first. Not saying, Lord, Lord, but Lord, be the Lord of my life completely now. And if Jesus Christ is the Lord of your life, the testings and the trials that come and they will come, we just simply say, thank you, Lord. Let him come. Help me to rejoice if I'm not rejoicing. Help me not to hinder your hand of changing my character. Lord, I want this perseverance to have its perfect work. But let me tell you right now, Jesus talks in a parable how the seed falls into the heart of a person and it falls upon a, it falls upon a hard, thin soil. And it says the word comes up quickly. The joy of the, the, the flower begins to bloom. But then when the scorching heat comes, which is persecution and trials and difficulties because of God's word, it says it fades away. And he says the problem was is it didn't have root in itself. And there's maybe some of you here tonight who are that flower that's come up and here you are for a year or five years or ten years. But your roots are going wide instead of deep because you're unwilling to allow God to make trials in your life. You're unwilling to rejoice and to say, Lord, whatever it takes, change me. And unfortunately, because of our times, because we live in a free country, because we live in a prosperous country, you're being able to continue to think you're a Christian. But let me tell you, the end times are coming. And at that time, we'll know whether you'll be touched by the second death, by whether or not you can per persevere to the end. But if you have a true Christian character now, you will have a true Christian character no matter what the trials. Earlier I talked about Job and the horrible things he went through. After his children died and he lost all, you know what his heart said? Naked I came in the world, naked I go out. Praise be to God. And then when his body was struck with the boils, you know what he said? Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. The same attitude Isaac had when Abraham was bringing the knife down upon him. The same attitude Jesus had when he hung upon the cross and his father was there putting the sin of the world upon him, causing him to die. Jesus did not die a physical death. He died the spiritual because he never sinned. And the Bible says, the soul that sinneth shall surely die. Jesus never sinned. He never would have died. The only reason Jesus died was because our sins came upon him. That's what killed him. D.L. Moody said this, He who is born once will die twice. 
but he who is born twice will die once. The book of Revelations tells us that every one of us will have a physical death because of the sin of Adam, because we're in a sinful body. But that's not death. That's only a separation from this body. Death, which Revelations calls a second death, is eternal hell, a complete and a permanent separation from God. A person who is a Christian who dies, they are immediately in the presence of God. To be absent of his body is to be present with the Lord. But a person who's in the world who's not a Christian, they're in the presence of the Lord. Every single person in the world right now is in the presence of God because the Spirit is in the world convicting men of sin and righteousness of judgment. And even the wickedest of sinner right now is sensing the presence of God. They're sensing God's Spirit convicting them of their sin and of righteousness and that there is a judgment to come. But when a, the person who doesn't know the Lord dies, they are separated from God. And that's why they do experience the sting of death. But for us who are Christians, we don't experience the sting of death. And I'll tell you, there's a book. It's called The Last Words of Saints and Sinners. And if you want to see the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian die, read that book. History has proven itself that the non-Christian dies in turmoil and agony. The Christian dies in victory. But that person, when they die once, they're separated from God, from the Spirit of God. But when they die that second death into eternal hell, they are eternally separated from God. And I'll tell you, to be without God is hell in and of itself. But that's not all there is going to be in hell. There is going to be a fire. There's going to be a blackness. There's going to be a weeping and a gnashing of teeth. The Bible clearly describes hell as a place where a person has eyes to only know that they cannot see. They have teeth to clench because of the extremeness of the pain. They have a mouth and a throat and a stomach only to feel the dryness that there is no water. The only reason they have a skin is to feel the piercing of the fire of that hell. The only reason they have ears is to hear the whelling and the weeping of eternal torture. The body that a person will have for eternal hell is a very specific body for eternal torture. That's the second death. I want to close with the words in Matthew 24 this evening. Matthew 24. Starting there in verse 36. Matthew 24, verse 36. But of that day and hour no one knows. No, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. In verse 37 of Matthew 24. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour when you do not expect him. Who then is the faithful and the wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household? So give them food in due season. 
Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, My master is delaying his coming, and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkenness, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and an hour that he is not aware of and will cut him in two, appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Watch and be ready. Are you truly born again? Is Jesus Lord in name only, or is he the Lord of your heart, of your mind, of your soul, and of your strength? Is he the Lord every second of your day, or as a Lord of a couple hours during your week when you come to church? Is Jesus Christ the Lord completely of your life? He's either the Lord of all of your life, or He's not Lord at all in your life. There is a clear distinction. Do you know the ruler, the creator, the end, and the beginning? Is He master of your life? Let's pray.